Welcome to The Real Photo Show. My guest today is photographer and educator, Laura Shipley, and we are going to talk about her book, Desire Lines, published by Overlaps. Desire Lines combines imagery and text, both contemporary and historical, as a vehicle to have a more thoughtful discussion about immigration. It looks at the current humanitarian crisis at the southern border, but it views it through the larger context of human migration and shifting borders. And we'll talk about how Laura ends up in the American Southwest as part of her educational journey towards being a photographer. Laura and I will also talk about her current collaboration with Anton Dezel called The Naked Truth, a story about a Victorian spa founded by a snake oil salesman, which eerily resembles the disinformation media world that was particularly effective during COVID. It is frighteningly similar uh, to what we all went through. Uh, and there's actually a bit of um, really interesting history of AM radio and the idea of border blasters. So be sure to listen through the end to hear about that. Uh, as always, Real Photo Show is sponsored by the Charcoal Book Club, a monthly subscription service and an amazing way to build or add to your photo book library. Visit them at charcoalbookclub.com. And just one last note, I'll be taking a break for the rest of the summer. Some of you who follow me on my personal Instagram account know that I'm rebuilding a sailboat. <laughs> so I'm going to continue on that. And also, I have two photo projects of my own that I'm trying to figure out what to do with. Uh, and hopefully I'll make some progress with that. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the show. And we will talk, uh, I don't know, in a month or so. Thank you very much for joining me today. Yes, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. I'm really excited to talk to you about your book, uh, Desire Lines, and we'll get into it. I have to stop myself from uh, jumping right into it <laughs> because I'd like you to just tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into all of this. Yeah, I let's see. Well, what would you like to know about uh, well, how I started photography? A little bit about your sort of your beginnings, a little bit of where you grew up and the influences that led you to photography and uh, maybe uh, also what you do now. You teach, I, right? I do, yeah. I'm a professor yeah. at Michigan State. I live in Detroit. And uh, I grew up in Missouri, a really rural part of Missouri. And actually uh, have an earlier book project with my collaborator, Anton Dozel, about um, the region that we're from, the Ozarks. Yes. Yeah, so that place is interesting because uh, it's pretty far away from any cities. So we really have like even really bookstores and, you know, this is mm. like from the era pre-internet, really. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so access to culture was just like a really a, a big deal, you know, and I was so hungry for just the outside world, really. I was always uh, wanting to travel and learn about you know, just get out. I was wanted to get out, basically. <laughs> and uh, so I loved photography. I loved novels, all of that stuff, uh, just ways of, you know, escaping and learning. And that's really how I got excited about it. Did you have uh, photography in high school? Did you pursue it in, in college? I mean, it was like it was a really small town. So we, we didn't have mm -hmm. um, anything like that uh, at our high school. But my grandpa, who was a barber in Pennsylvania, he was an amateur photographer and had his own dark room in the back of his barber studio. And he was like just a really interesting guy. He had like eight kids and I think he loved to 
go to work and uh mm-hmm. <laughs> where he had he would do some like woodworking back there he had his own little shop oh, wow. and then yeah he had a dark room so he had this huge collection of photographs and so i was always really just fa- i think maybe that came from him a little bit just fascinated mm-hmm. by the medium and and then in high school uh my dad and i took a like a one credit community college photography class we drove like community college hour. yeah <laughs> yeah to go and um and that i was so excited that was you know i actually worked at yeah. um sonic drive-in i don't know if you guys even know what those are sure yeah okay <laughs> yeah yeah i don't know what they were originally but they're kind of a cartoonish 50s style yes they, they you were know, roller skate <laughs> that's what they were now. in the yeah. 90s okay. when i worked at one. <laughs> okay <laughs> and uh yeah so i was able to save up for a little 35 millimeter nikon and yeah got, mm-hmm. so i did get started in high school but it wasn't until college that i got any formal training really that early influence from your grandfather and then taking a class with your father that that's really interesting that um, your grandfather had a dark room. Oh, he was so funny. I mean, even in his 80s, he sold his big house where he raised all those kids. And uh, mm. he had this little apartment and he was trying to set up a dark room in his like laundry closet. It's like no ventilation. <laughs> Yes, I had a few of those dark rooms. He's, you know, he's like, he's like, I'm, I'm gonna die soon. Who cares? <laughs> I was doing color processing in a tiny room with minimal vi- ventilation for a while. You were, <laughs> yes. I mean, when you, you know, when you have, when you just have that desire, right? When you just, mm-hmm. you just find a way. Absolutely, and so. When do you leave that region then? When do you leave the Ozarks? Uh, college, yeah. So I, mm-hmm. uh, and I ended up going to a college that didn't really have, uh, at the time, a, a great photography program. They actually do now in, in the art department. They have some really fantastic, mm-hmm. University of Missouri, Columbia, some great professors there. But at the time, it was just taught by graduate students, and, uh, but they had a great photojournalism school one of, oh, one of the okay. best in the in the country so so i ended up actually kind of getting in my grades wouldn't have been good enough to get into that school <laughs> right off but someone introduced me to the faculty there and i showed them my portfolio i'd been working on and ended up able to get into the program so yeah so that's how i ended up being a getting my start in journalism so you have a photojournalism background then mm-hmm. i think that Makes a lot of sense yes, it does. <laughs> for the work you're doing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The book you started to mention that you were collaborating on with Anton Dolzell. Mm-hmm. Is that Dolzell? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that's Devil's Promenade. That's right. Yeah. And that is a book about the Ozarks. It is. Is that your first book? Uh, yeah. Well, that is our first book that's been kind of like officially formally published. We made uh, okay. zines for a little while. We had. Uh, mm called Spooklight Chronicles. So kind of an earlier uh, little zine project, Ozark storytelling and mm-hmm. photographs. Yeah. Yeah. So Devil's Promenade was published by Overlaps. Right. And that's where your new book uh, is published as well, Desire Lines. That's right. Is that how you discovered Overlaps? Because I have to say Desire Lines is a very Overlaps book. And I mean that in the, in the best way. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. We, yeah. Well, we loved... Uh, Tiffany Jones, a publisher mm-hmm. of Overlaps. Uh, I mean, she's just a perfect fit for us. Like, you yeah. know, for uh, Devil's Promenade first and then for me with Desire Lines. Like I said, I mean, I 
in addition to photography, I've always been a big reader. And I really think what she's trying to do is create this visual, mm-hmm. these visual novels in a way. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's a really um, different kind of idea of what a photo book is than, um, mm-hmm. you know, a collection of photographs, even a collection of photographs that's carefully edited. I mean, she's really pushing it to a different place that really suits us uh, and, and my work because, yeah. I'm writing, collecting interviews, all these materials. Right. Yeah. Right. There's a there's a particular kind of mixed media visual storytelling that Overlaps does very well. I, yes. I came to know them through Omani Willett's mm, books. So, yeah. so incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So when we were setting up, you mentioned that you had lived in the Southwest for a bit. And now you've moved to the Detroit area. What brought you to the Southwest? I actually ended up there twice in my life. I uh, right out of college, I did a, a internship at a newspaper in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and really decided newspapers just were not a good fit for me. Um, yeah, but being in Santa Fe, I wandered into PhotoEye and ended up getting a job at PhotoEye, a bookstore and gallery. Oh, wow. Yeah. With uh, yeah. Melanie McCarter, McWhorter, who, uh, if anyone, she doesn't work there anymore, but she was there forever and is an amazing person. She gave me a job and, uh, and Ricks and Reed. And that's where I really fell in love with photo books. Mm. And that was experience was like an MFA in itself. Um, right. I can imagine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so eye opening to like what, you know, what the genre could be after coming out of a traditional documentary program. And then later on, I went to graduate school in, at Arizona State. And that's where uh, I started working on this project in the Arizona border. So now I think, you know, we have this kind of lead into this work, this work that you did in the Sonoran Borderlands. So it was the the internship that brings you out to the Southwest, and then your work at PhotoEye keeps you there. And then you pursue an MFA in photography. Is that right? The timeline, right? <laughs> yeah, I actually, I, I lived in DC uh, in between oh, those okay. things. I worked at um, mm-hmm. National Geographic. I worked at like a nonprofit, I kind of, I, I was all over the place for a while, but I ended up back in the Southwest for graduate school. Yeah. Um, okay. Okay. Yeah. Is that when you start becoming interested in the Sonoran desert region? I think I was in, interested in migration for a long time, uh, beginning mm-hmm. living in New Mexico, uh, but also actually before that, because I took a year off of school to work at a newspaper in Costa Rica. Um, And then during that experience, traveled around. So worked at La Nación, the national newspaper there. And so, yeah, I kind of had a a variety of experiences. I think I was just curious to learn more while I was located in Arizona. Yeah. So why don't we just get into it? Mm -hmm. Desire Lines is about migration. Yeah. But it isn't about immigration the way we think of it, I think, in the news, right? Yes. This takes... That was the goal. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well done. <laughs> because I think what what is pervasive throughout the book is that this is about the idea of human migration, of the idea that, that people have migrated throughout time. And it's, it's the borders that are kind of the recent thing. Right. The idea of borders. Totally. Yeah. I mean, particularly the border in its current manifestation is very new. It's actually always evolving. Uh, Mm -hmm. It evolved during the period of me working on this project. And 
the way we think about it now is a pretty recent manifestation, you know, this very right. closed place. Yeah. With heavily controlled. Yeah. And you've picked a, an area that spans two countries, several states, even the concept of Baja California is this place that is somewhat even independent of Mexico, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That has its own history. Yes. And I, I'm really focusing mainly in the Arizona Sonoran mm -hmm. region. Yeah, because I mean, it is, this is such a big topic. Right. And uh, part of what I wanted to do with it was uh, let it be big. But also I was like, okay, I got to have some parameters here. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the book is filled with images and text overlays and uh, montages and collage work and archival articles. And the testimonials themselves come from a variety of sources. This isn't just, you know, a migrant story being told. It's also the story of people who live in border towns. The park ranger uh, that you found mm -hmm. has a, a sort of a big role in this book, I think. And then it's followed up by an essay written by yourself. Yeah. And now that I know your journalism background, I understand the decision to write the essay yourself as opposed to you know trying to bring someone in to, to write the essay, which, by the way, it, it is such a good essay. Uh, it is. <laughs> Thank you. Really. I, yeah, I, I loved reading it because I read it and I thought, this is such a calm approach to human migration. Oh, right? thank you. There's something about this book that is, it explores, you know, the problems that we're all facing with human migration, right? Mm -hmm. And the idea that we've locked down this border and the problems that has created in itself. But it does it in a very, I think, calm and holistic approach. Thank you. Well. I, I, yeah, it's such a new book. So I haven't actually had a lot of feedback yet. So that's really <laughs> great to hear. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I've been thinking so much lately about the way in which, I mean, these conversations we're having in this country about book banning mm -hmm. and just acknowledging oh, yeah. our own history. And that's for me, you know, I didn't have the best education growing up. And, uh, but I think in general, we do not learn our own history. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that has to be something that is emotional. You know, I think it really is just something right. that we have to, it's like, it just seems so common to take sense sides to me. Yeah, I know. It's like, it's history. just actually you what happened. You don't have to take sides, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, yeah, it's become so hard to, to do that and have open conversations. Right, yes. right. And, uh, and for me, I mean, I think my approach to this place, this is not where I'm from. This isn't, my own personal biography, but it is very much something that is a part of my, who I am as an American, right? And that's right. what I try to get at in the essay is that uh, what's happening here is a real defining aspect of American value of who we are, you know, and so but we we can't see it, you know, mm -hmm. and we don't want to see it, I think, in a lot of ways. And so that's, so I, I, what I really wanted with with a book was to just kind of open the door in a sense uh, to to get, yeah, let some light in. Right. And the photographs themselves are both kind of broad landscape photos and more kind of detailed, uh, almost forensic evidence photos. And then, of course, you like I said, you include archival work, historical work, articles as well. There's so many decisions that have to be made in a book like this, right? Yeah. How does that all work? 
<laughs> well, I mean, I have to give a lot of credit to Tiffany Jones because this was uh, mm -hmm. a monster of a project for sure. I mean, I felt overwhelmed. I mean, I, I worked on this for mm -hmm. 10 years, more than that. I started in 2010. So mm. I think um, it's great for people to hear that, right? That yeah. it, and I'm sure there were so many different ideas you had all along the way of what this might look like. Right. In the yes. End. I mean, uh, uh, one of the reasons why this project was hard was because I was actively trying to change my the way I worked. And I didn't exactly know what the outcome I wanted, but I knew what I didn't want. And, you know, I have a lot of respect for journalism and the, the way I learned, you know, the practices that I learned. But I think there is an issue with telling stories the same way every time it's mm -hmm. like there's this, this narrative structures you know it's like and I, I have a child right now so i'm really i have a three-year-old so i'm very very immersed in how we learn through storytelling right like she's learning mm -hmm. every the whole world through stories and so the way we tell a story is really important and i think we can we kind of take for granted using this narrative structure over and over that kind of simplifies and just pulls out uh, one piece, right? It's like, we're mm -hmm. going to tell this story about the history of missionaries. We're going to tell this story about the history of mining. We're going to tell a story about current migration, you know, or current border surveillance. And the problem is that you're not seeing the way things are interacting. And that the, right. and the interaction for me with this project was what was important. You know, how did we right. get here? How do all the, the, how does the puzzle all fit together? How, how is the way in which we've been interacting with this landscape for centuries? How has that evolved to the place that we're at today? Because if you don't understand that, then you really can't have a conversation about what's happening there now. Yeah. But it's hard to get to that without letting this be this messy thing, you know? So I was... For years, yeah, pursuing all, you know, spending a lot of time in, you know, small towns, talking to people who are growing up in the small towns and still trying to make a living there. And it's just interesting, like learning about how they, the towns were there because of this mining boom. But then now they're kind of being supported through this border industry, but mm -hmm. then they're also getting stopped by border patrol on the way to Walmart, right. you know? So it, it was, it's just so complicated, you know? And I, right. I think, and you, you trace some of it back to a, a 1994 decision to yeah. enforcement through deterrence uh, and pushing people away from what were traditional access points into much more dangerous territories yes. for crossing for you know their own safety and coyotes and you know the whole issue that mm -hmm. is so much talked about now and then also having then to create a larger border protection force because you've pushed people into different areas right and thinking that making it harder would be a deterrent instead it just made it more dangerous yeah so that memo that border patrol memo which is available online if you google it anyone can find mm -hmm. it um and we reproduced it in the book that really led to the current problem of i mean people actually weren't really migrating through the sonoran desert in large numbers because it's incredibly dangerous it's so mm -hmm hot it's so hostile there is there isn't water you know i've almost stepped on a rattlesnake there i mean it's like mm. 
you can't imagine, I mean, a more challenging place. I mean, and currently, you know, people might be walking through for many days in the most remote parts of this place. This is a very new situation. And it started with this idea that we are going to really focus on controlling uh, migration and cities where it used to happen Mm -hmm. and push it into these deserts, these really remote areas. So this policy prevention through deterrence, it was partly about getting people into a landscape where, you know, the border patrol could really control the situation they thought. Partly, I think about the border patrol not having being as complicit in people dying, you know, because mm-hmm. it's like, well, they they decided to cross this desert and they died in the desert when it's like they were kind of really pushed into this, pushed them into migrants into um, increasingly depending on the cartel system to cross. So th- right. uh, that kind of danger. And it also made it made migration basically invisible to average Americans. You know, they, they weren't able to they weren't seeing it like they, you know, you used to be able to see people migrating if you like lived in San Diego or El Paso mm-hmm. or whatever, you know. So even people living in the borderlands, like even in the towns, don't have a lot of visibility to what's happening in the right. remote desert. You have, like I said, testimonials from people from uh, who are impacted by this in different ways. Mm-hmm. And uh, there, there's a, a quote from someone who lives in a town and talks about, we don't really worry about it too much because we just imagine there's so much border patrol and border security in our town right now. If somebody does something wrong, they're going to be on them, you know, immediately. I'm paraphrasing. But there's this, like you were saying, this balance between depending on this border patrol presence, but also having this massive amount of surveillance in these small towns. Yeah. I mean, because we ordinary Americans aren't seeing migrants, we're kind of like maybe taught to to think that they're very scary, you know, and there's like signs. And I have one of them in the book. Uh, right. Lots of warning signs when you're tra- when mm-hmm. you're in remote areas that you might encounter smugglers and stuff like this. And um, and so I think people are very can be very on guard. But there, peop- it was so common to have uh, interactions with migrants in the past. And um, right. you know, you're, you're like, desperate people trying to survive, you know, it's, so it's interesting, you know, it's another way I think of trying to control the narrative about what's happening. But yeah, the kind of police state feeling that is living in this area right now is very intense, you know, mm-hmm. um, where people literally are going through border checkpoints to leave their t- the town they live in to go to another town. Right. And I'm not talking about at the border. I'm talking about like... Well, well within our, the, 40, the border 50, of the United 60 States. 40, 60 miles right. north of the border. If you want <laughs> right. to leave the small town that you're in to go somewhere else, most likely you have to go through a checkpoint, talk to a border patrol person, see, you know, these big dogs. Like sometimes these interactions are pretty chill and sometimes they're actually very threatening, you know, and this is... This is a part of people's lives now. Right. The, a lot of the photographs I made were uh, during the early Trump administration. And you could really, it was palpable, the intensity mm. of, I mean, Border Patrol were just everywhere. And it was like, there was always, always been helicopters. That's always been a part of that landscape that since I've been, since I've been there in the last 10 years. But it was the first time I saw them like in neighborhoods, you know, in people's mm. backyards. So it was just very... 
intense. Uh, you describe border agents as their own kind of migratory population. They are. Right? They are. Yeah. They're not from there. Yeah. I mean, occasionally, but, you know, we need a, that's the other thing is uh, the Border Patrol has just grown and grown and grown. And also the, the, the retention for those jobs is not great. At least, it, you know, it wasn't, I think, a lot, a lot of folks I talked to, you know, were moving in and out. You know, there's a lot of veterans that are taking those jobs, you know, so I think it can be very nerve wracking when you're just like encountering all of these people that are pretty new to this area uh, that are having this kind of conflict mentality, you know, mm-hmm. in these communities where people are living. <laughs> right. Yeah. And towards yeah. and towards also people who are you know, really trying to leave the conflict areas of their homes in Latin America. Yeah. So you you meet this park ranger and his name is... Christopher. Christopher. Okay. Yeah. So he has this this really nice piece that he talks about history and the fluidity of borders and how this landscape is here. The borders will change, right? You know, in, in mm-hmm. the history of, of humankind, the borders have changed. Um, and then I think he ends it with history isn't over yet, right? Right. W- one thing that's been really helpful about working on the project for a long period of time, like t- over 10 years, is I could see just in that short period of time changes happening, cultural changes within uh, the way Border Patrol mm. were, were, you know, working with, you know, communities, things happening, uh, patterns of migration. And uh, I was thinking, you know, I think that our, as humans, we have like a really limited way of looking at history. You know, we we, we don't live that long, you know. Mm. I've been reading about trees a lot recently. Right. I've just been really thinking about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, if you compare you yourself do, to you're trees, you're just like, you're it's really just like a little speck of time. But we tend to really be like, oh, this is how it is. You know, hey, we're looking at maybe our lifetime, maybe our mm-hmm. parents, maybe our grandparents, you know, but it we're not getting this larger picture. And so I think there's something really healthy about taking a step back and uh, having this broader perspective of uh, seeing a place in evolution. I mean, I think one, one thing it does is it doesn't get make you too fixed on hanging on to the present moment. Right. That's right. Yeah. And, and the book does that so well, and it's, it's so easy to fall into what's happening right now and just the kind of helplessness you feel uh, talking about the political debates. And I think this book does a good job of not engaging in that conversation that's over very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right, right, right. And, uh, you know, I think uh, one, one of the things that I really liked that we did in the book was I was collecting these oral histories that... I found through uh, Arizona historical societies of people talking about migrating, a lot of white settlers talking and European settlers migrating in the 19th century, um, early 20th century to this area. And, you know, there's no dates or names. So I mixed those in with people migrating today because the impulses are the same. Mm. Right. Uh, the desire is the same. That's, you know, where the, the title's coming from is this. We need humans, you know, desire lines are these paths that are created not by construction, but by right. desire, right? These right. people want to get to someplace. So, yeah, um, it's, we actually, yeah, we, we actually didn't mention that, right? It's, it's actually lines or paths created because people see this 
way of getting from one place to another. And it's a sort right. of, uh, most sometimes the most direct route or the route with least resistance, right? Yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, actually, Tiffany came up with that title. And I thought it was so perfect because I was trying to think of a way to talk about really democratize this, you know, is not so much about certain groups migrating at certain times, but all migration, right? And one mm -hmm. hand, or, you know, migration is, is such a part of every person's history, you know, or definitely, of course, mine, you know, it's American history, for sure. You know, you mentioned that you had worked on this for 10 years, and that there were sort of changes in modalities along the way. Is that reflected in the book in terms of the kind of photo, the photographs you decided to put in the book? Because I mean, I imagine you, this is so cut down from so many images, but also maybe so many kinds of images that you were making. I mean, I think that they are all, all represented, but um, mm -hmm. it was a challenge to because, yeah, my my way of working did change a lot. I was I was using a Hasselblad for several years. And so I had these mm -hmm. square and I was taking a lot of portraits because uh, you can't you know, that's what Hasselblads are really good for. And <laughs> I think they also had more of a romantic sensibility than for mm -hmm. them when I was going back. I think in this these early Trump years, 2016, 2017, I was making these landscapes that were more noon lighting, um, you know, mm -hmm. more stark, more, like you mentioned, yeah, that, more like evidentiary. Yeah. Harsh desert uh, light. Right. Yeah. So yeah, trying to put these pieces together was definitely hard. And so one thing that Tiffany and I talked a lot about is like this, this interest in layers, like kind of like the layers of history, layers of um, mm -hmm narratives, all these things, like really making that a visual in the book. And so uh, in the last year is when um, the collages really, the year before I published is the collages really, I think, came in to really help, I think, pull all these pieces together. Also, sort of random things like, you know, I was fascinated by like the American road trip and, you know, these mm -hmm. white families from Nebraska who were taking a family vacation in the Sonora. And so I, I had from, I love flea markets. I love all, all that stuff. And so I, had, I found a huge stack of vintage postcards from Arizona that I actually even kind of forgot about. They were like from three moves ago, you know, <laughs> uh, and I was like, hey, can we use these? So um, Tiffany was like, yeah, these are great. So those ended up becoming, um, you have this little little remnant of another way of another right. kind of migrant group through the postcards that are laid right. in there. And there's a, a mix of color and black and white. Yeah. And you, is your work primarily in black and white in this book? Or uh, it's it is both color and black and white. I think I, I've always mixed the two. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, I think I, I I think this is especially as a former journalist. I. I don't really want to create this illusion of reality with my work. I'm really is also I think about this a lot as a photographic educator. You know, I'm I'm really wanting people to remember that they're looking at this thing that I created. You know, and I, and photography is so easily confused for reality that I feel like the mixture of elements helps kind of remind people that mm -hmm. you know. These are all decisions, right? Well, also a big part of this book is perception yeah. as well. And I think this sort of collage style and alternating between color and black and white and overlays lends itself to the idea that we're not talking about just facts. We're also talking about 
the way we perceive things, but also perceive mm-hmm. things differently depending on the era that we're in, the time that we're in, right? And the person that we are. I mean, our own positioning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And so the landscapes were, especially where I'm um, tearing them and distorting them. I was thinking a mm-hmm. lot. I really started doing that while writing the essay where I talk a lot about visibility and how we are like hiding. I think this place is we're really hiding some aspects of our nation making our nation building that we don't really want to deal with. And so I think it's interesting that you can go there. It's not like we can't go there. You can go there and see this place, but it's hard to actually see it. You know, mm-hmm. it wasn't really until I I worked with a, a geographer for a while. I was traveling with a geographer when I was working on this project and I really shifted my understanding of the landscape that I was looking at because, you know, you you go down there and you're just like desert. It looks like mm-hmm. desert that's really hard to live there. And no, lot, a lot of people aren't living there. And that kind of makes sense, you know. But uh, when you dig into the history of the geography, you know, there the, people always live there. And uh, once the federal government gained control of this region, they started controlling larger and larger tracts of land and removing the people living there, indigenous, but also Mexican and Anglo, removing homesteads and removing the evidence of them in order to create greater control. So you're looking mm-hmm. at this place that looks natural and it's, it's this total illusion. I mean, it's completely manufactured. It's completely specific to it's this intention. I mean, the way it, what it's supposed to function, I mean, is, you know, how it's been weaponized, you know? And so I wanted that to be reflective in the landscape that you're looking at it, but you're, you know, once you have the sense that you, you're really not on stable ground, when you're looking mm-hmm. at this place. You mentioned teaching uh, photography. Mm-hmm. What what levels of class are you teaching? Oh, yeah, I teach all, all levels. So beginning photo, advanced, and then we have uh, mm-hmm. grad students as well. Yeah. How long have you been teaching? Since graduate school. I started uh, in graduate oh, school. Okay. So I guess it's been about um, 13 years. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. And then yeah. Um, my having this, um, my job at Michigan State, I think I've been there six years now. Are you ready for the AI wave? <laughs> you know, I mean, talk about like confusion of what is real. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I think, you know, I, I've been trying to prepare, you know, for conversations. I, I, I teach at community college level, mm-hmm. so I, I only have intro level and then second year level students. I'm at the beginning end of, of most of the conversations. But, you know, I think I think our conversations and our questions will have to change. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think in some ways, some some ways, yes, but in other ways, I think it's really are we going to be able to use this tool to express what we want to express? Mm-hmm. And I think in, in our first kind of experiments with it, that is what I haven't seen yet. And I don't think I've I've figured out how to. Right. Get there, you know, because uh, I, I found, you know, students, I, I was letting them play with it. And this is like, you know, this is kind of what it's creating. You know, it's like, well, how is that expressing yeah. your intention? What, you, you know, is this? Right. Yeah. Exactly. How are, yeah. How are you? What are you uh, the author of? I mean, and that's I mean, that's this really complicated question with AI. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's the old question and the new question. Right. Who is the author? And right. And what and what is original? <laughs> right. 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 Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So now, are you collaborating with Anton Dolzell 
on a new project called The Naked Truth, or is that something you, the two of you have already done? No, we're still working on it. Um, we actually have a lot to do, uh, a lot that, oh, uh, okay. a lot of material that we got from our last trip that we haven't even really dug into. So he's coming out to Michigan this summer, and we're going to spent a couple weeks working on that. So I'm really excited about that. And that project is very much about manipulating the truth, manipulating reality. Mm -hmm. So that is uh, about a Victorian spa founded by basically what they used to call a snake oil salesman, right? Right. Yeah. So it's an interesting history. It's both. um, It's a place that was founded on this idea that the water was magical, and it could heal your body, Mm. which really came from, you know, this is like pre antibiotics. This is like people living in cities with unclean water. So in a lot of ways, this is just people flushing out like eye infections with clean water, you know, (laughs) (laughs) stuff like that. But that's how the, the town became to be in the first place is this is beautiful Victorian town and like this valley with all these natural springs and it had this old hotel or you know they they built this beautiful Mm -hmm. hotel on the hillside and then the you know and then and then they did invent antibiotics and then the Great Depression happened and people were just desperate you know I heard from what I read people were starving they had nothing and so this guy uh, who has already kind of been run out of a couple places, he invented a, a musical instrument, but then he oh, also wow. got an AM radio and he was doing, he had a border blaster station. So he was in the, uh, El Paso. I don't know if you know, but this, this weird history of uh, AM radio is pretty fascinating. No, I don't. I don't. Well, uh, there was a limit of, of how big of a tower, basically, how big of a stretch you could ha- build your radio uh, st- you know, towers in the United States. And so people would go across the border to build these huge, huge radio towers oh, called wow. border blasters that could reach coast to coast. And so he was like a real kind of Rush Limbaugh kind of guy on the Mm -hmm. radio. But then he got, and sorry, one other detail from his history is he was a uh, magician in the Victorian era. And so he kind of always got his start with like this idea of uh, creating illusions, but then learning how to kind of build this into this larger, more profitable industry of medical malpractice which he really supported through his talk radio of um, by um, telling people you can't trust the government, you can't trust doctors, you can't trust academia, you can't trust any of these systems. Wow, that sounds familiar. Right? (laughs) Uh, You can trust me, which you couldn't. (laughs) Oh, wow. And so then he, yeah, he bought this hotel, turned it into a fake hospital to treat cancer, and people mm. came, which is, you know, is terrible. I mean, people had like nothing mm-hmm. in the middle of the Great Depression. We're like paying this guy for these, you know, mm. fake injections, which sounded like they were also very painful. Yeah. And so then he did that for a while until he got busted for mail fraud. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that it's amazing how familiar that story is. That's what with, we thought. You know, Rush Limbaugh with Alex Jones with, you know, I mean, that's. Yeah. That's incredible. Well, we yeah, started really- this project, yeah, in 2016, because we're both from these small rural areas. And mm-hmm. we were sort of like, well, this is in what's Arkansas, happening? Right? Yeah, this is in yeah. Arkansas, in Eureka Springs. And mm-hmm. we were really confused by what was happening in our country and this like shift in politics and the rise of Trump and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And 
it was confusing what the appeal was because, you know, people from small towns don't tend to really like New Yorkers, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, or trust them. And so it's like, or, you know, like, what is this guy? What's the appeal, you know? And so we just, we were interested in digging into this history of this, you know, con man, but kind of a specifically an American style con that is really rooted mm-hmm. in the American dream that anything is possible, you know? But also based on preying on fear. Totally. And and mistrust. Right. right? You know, you can't trust any of these institutions, you know, so mm-hmm. this real um, populist messaging Right. That you just, yeah. you know, you trust this independent person, he's going to have your back. And yeah. Well, COVID generated, you know, COVID a thousand did. more of these people. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I know. It was like, it was kind of fiction meeting or this like history meeting current reality working on this project during COVID. It was so bizarre. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you're yeah. like the president's like, what about bleach? You know, this just sounds mm-hmm. just like this guy who's like, well, inject this stuff it's carbolic acid you know that might cure your cancer you yeah. know like i <laughs> <laughs> make sure you just, just, pay me for it it's, it's too close to what <laughs> we're real. experiencing it's now real. i yeah. know <laughs> yeah oh. so that's been an interesting project yeah that's wild yeah yeah so we can look forward to that mm-hmm. this seems to be the thread that runs through your work right the kind of mythology of how things come about and our perception and belief and the reality of what it's like to really be there, right? Yeah, I think I'm really interested in, I mean, in particularly, I think these stories are universal. I mean, I think with Desire Lines, this is something like where every country in the world where needs to have a humane migration system and is, you know, trying mm-hmm. to, should be trying to figure this out. Uh, but there is something very much about America and the American dream and American mythologies that is very specific, you know, very specific causes a lot of pain, I think causes pain Mm -hmm. for both people who are trying to get a leg up here and are having a hard time, which is a lot of what Devil's Promenade is about. And also people wanting to come in carrying that dream from other places here and getting a very hostile welcome, you know, because right. we're also dealing with the the legacy of manifest destiny, you know, and so that's a right when I was talking about why I was interested in these Anglo Europeans moving in, it really is bringing in this idea that hey, there's a lot of people already here, but we are divinely privileged mm-hmm. to take this. It's so right. wild, but the remnants of that have never left us. Right. Yeah. I think you mentioned that, that Manifest Destiny isn't over yet. It's not over. Right. Well, it was in that memo. I mean, a kind of that Border Patrol memo where they're outlining mm-hmm. this idea of prevention through deterrence. I can't remember the exact quote, but, you know, any like I said, anyone can look it up. It's They talk about how the goal is in part to protect this earlier white migration. They don't say white mm-hmm. migration, but that's that's right. the underlying, you know, it says protect the migrant histories that are formed this country. I right. think that's how they put it. Yeah. So uh, ICP had a book fair recently and you were there with overlaps. And are there other events planned for this book or are you already uh, moving on to your next project? <laughs> uh, I, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, both and both. <laughs> 
<laughs> I I can't wait mm-hmm. to get started on on some new work, but I I am also very excited for people to learn about this project. So I'll be at the LA Art Book Fair with Skylight Books. Oh, nice! In August, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the uh, yeah. So that's the next event that I know of. So we missed each other in New York. Uh, are you coming back to New York anytime? I mean, I'd always love to. I love New York, so you know. <laughs> I'll keep keep my eye out for good opportunities, for sure. Okay. Well, the book is fantastic. And it's definitely one I'm going to show to my students as a way of exploring an incredibly heated and volatile topic in a very non-bombastic way, right? Just a way to approach something as part of history, uh, as part of humanity. I think there's real empathy in the book Thank for you. people who live in these border towns, for the migrants, for, you know, park rangers, right? There's this sort of desire to understand in the book. Yeah. Thank you. So congratulations. <laughs> thank you so yeah. much. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. This has been fantastic. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you again for having me. All right. Bye, everyone. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> Real Photo Show is produced by me, Michael Chauvin-Dalton. Music by Matteo Chauvin-Dalton and Jim Raimundo, recorded at the Rutherford Music Exchange. If you like the show, please rate and review with all the stars on your favorite listening platform. 